Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. Today is Sunday, January 20th, 2019. The share ID numbers for Friday, January 18th are the following. For the 7 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 12,436. That's 1, 2, 4, 3, 6. And for the 10 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 12,437. That's 1, 2, 4, 3, 7. This morning, A Vision for You presents Trudging the Road of Happy Destiny. Overeaters Anonymous stands for the proposition that the 12 steps give us freedom from the bondage of our disease. OA's 12 steps are a group of principles, spiritual in their nature, which, if practiced as a way of life, can expel the obsession to compulsively overeat and enable the sufferer to become happily and usefully whole. We submit to a simple process that certainly is not easy, yet takes us to a place we've never been. We didn't even know this place existed. The results are disproportionate to our efforts, yet our efforts are absolutely required to sustain and enlarge it. Hence, the big book states that we trudge the road of happy destiny. To trudge, the definition being to walk slowly with a lot of effort. The 12-step path is a design for living. By continuing to trudge, we will be free from the things that used to enslave us. Joining us today to share her story of transformation is Lauren N., a recovered compulsive overeater from New York. Lauren is committed to our daily trudge, our daily way of life, and she's here to share her experience, strength, and hope with all of us today. Welcome to the line, Lauren N. Thank you, Leah. Can you hear me? I hear you very well. Hello all, this is Lauren N, and I'm from New York, but I'm sitting in Telluride, Colorado this morning. Just having arrived last night late, multiple planes and buses and whatnot, I came and I am so grateful. I'm so grateful. In my gratitude today, I wrote that I'm in Telluride. That's wonderful. But how grateful I am to have this experience, to be able to, re, to be able to share with you all how I trudge the road of happy destiny with you all and be sitting in the apartment of my brother's and um, just being able to know that I'm going to be able to be physically active later today and uh, go skiing. And when I think back to where I've come from, I am just shocked by this. And it's not, and I have to say, it's with, without your help, Leah, Melanie, Harlan, Larry, Melissa, 
and all of you other fellows, my gods, with skin who passed the message and who have taught me how to live this life in a way that I can be happy, joyous, and free. I cannot tell you how wonderful that is for me today. So let me start by saying the serenity prayer because I want to invite God into whatever I'm going to say so that I know that I'm coming from my heart. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Thy will, not mine, be done. Amen. I can feel, you know, I've shared, I've shared in multiple face-to-face meetings over the years, but this is the first time I'm sitting alone in a kitchen knowing that I'm talking to hundreds of people, whether it be live or via the podcast, and that you all understand where I've been and hopefully are willing to get to where I'm going and to be by my side throughout that time. So, my story, that's all I can do is tell you my story. I was born in New York area, Westchester County, um, to a mother that had our disease and a father that was, not, was a workaholic. I had qualifiers because I'm in that program too, all the way from the get-go. I remember very few things from my young age other than my weight. I can tell you what I weighed on what day or what time. I can tell you when I was fitting into proper clothes or not, when I had problems with my peers because they were making fun of me because I was the first girl in fifth grade to wear an underwire bra. I was the first or one of the first girls to get my period and girls made fun of girls who got there first. I felt like I was completely unable to live this life the way everybody else seemed to be able to live it. I remember finding sugary wrappers, or wrappers of candy bars in my mother's um, pocketbook when I was a little girl and being jealous that she could buy this stuff and I couldn't. I remember um, being 
upset by her for not sharing the goodies. I remember seeing a picture of me on my first birthday with my hands stuck in a cake where the icing was was this buttercream icing and I was addicted from day one. I could never, ever, ever get enough. So I, my parents sent me to therapy when I was about 10 or 11 because I was maladjusted to life and all I wanted to do was eat. And I was getting better. Um, I had dieted. I was probably 12 years old or 13 years old. And I had gotten down to a reasonable weight and I was able to stand up to the bullies in my school. And then my mother got sick. And um, in 1974, she died of cancer and left me with my abusive father and my brother and all the weight that I had lost within minutes came back on. At her shiva, where everybody bought, brought cookies, candies, cakes, all I did was eat. I was numb from then until my mid, probably late, 30s when, um, or maybe closer to my early 40s, all I did was eat and not eat, eat and not eat. I was on every diet. My father told me many a time that I would never amount, I would never meet a man because nobody would ever love me at my size. And I believed him. When I look back, when I graduated from high school, I was 160 pounds. When I went off to college, I was 180 pounds. That was pretty good considering where I ultimately went. I married, I met and married an alcoholic, as some of us tend to do. And during the seven years of our marriage, I lived in Switzerland um, where we were married and lived together. And during those years, I would weigh myself in kilos. So then it didn't matter because I didn't weigh that 280 pounds when I left him because I didn't have to get on a a pound scale. I got on a kilo scale and it was really only 120 kilos. So that was not so bad, right? The numbers, the things I did to, to diet, to get to these, to get into, to be able to wear clothes, to be able to buy clothes, to be able to be in um, a country that everybody was very, very homogeneous and looked the same and was beautiful, beautiful people, they would stare at me when I would walk down the aisle in the tram 
They would actually stare at me because I was so big. It got to the point where my ex-husband didn't want to hold my hand in public. Now, he, we never had a problem in private, but in public he was ashamed. And I thought, well, F you. I blamed him for my life being so bad. I blamed my father for my life being so bad. I blamed my mother for dying. I blamed everybody else, and I had no responsibility for my eating. I felt like my hand was taking the food and putting it in my mouth, and it was separate from me. There was no there was no conscious decision to put food in my mouth. I moved back from Switzerland with a um, at then then three and a half year old son and started to recreate my life. And I was 35 years old. I had lived in Switzerland for seven years. I had no credit. I had nothing, no friends left, and I was 286 pounds at 5'1". I couldn't walk a set of steps, but hey, I had a son to raise, and I was just going to do it. I was going to plow through my life. Well, as I approached my, my mother had died at 41, And as I approached my 40s, I thought I would never reach my 41st birthday. I thought I would die at the same time she did. And you know what? That was not so bad because I was in pain every day. Either I was eating or I was dieting and counting every point, every, every ounce, every whatever, and waiting for what I would do is I would eat nothing all day and then I'd have all the goodies at night. And I'd have all the points that I could. I'd save all my points and I'd eat all the goodies. The, the Weight Watchers desserts, the um, Jenny Craig desserts, the various different desserts. I'd work out like crazy. Um, well, when I was... 38, I went into analysis. I went into analysis four days a week with a therapist because I did not want to leave my son like my mother had left me. I felt like I was not going to be able to make it past 41. So I spent the next 19 years on the couch But the only thing I couldn't do was I couldn't lose weight. I couldn't stop eating. Don't get me wrong. Analysis helped me get to the point where I could come into this room. Analysis got me to the point where I was willing to look at my behaviors. Without analysis, I don't think I would have made it here. I don't think I would have made it past 41, honestly. But 
It didn't cure my food addiction. It didn't cure my my food behaviors. It didn't cure me of this illness. It helped me learn that my mother, that I did not kill my mother because that's what I thought I had done. It helped me learn that I was not responsible for my father's anger and I could not cure him. It helped me learn that when I would explosively yell at my son, it was not good for anyone because I became that angry person that my father was. The first six or seven years of analysis um, was dealt with my mother and losing her at a time when I was vulnerable. I was 14 years old and I needed a mother. I believe I went into PTSD or whatever they call it. And it was basically my way of dealing with or not being able to deal with the loss of someone who was so important to me. Um, However, at the same time, I also started trying to deal with my health. I went to Duke and Diet, Diet and Fitness Center for a week when my son went off with his father, when I was in my late, late, late 30s, thinking that would cure me. I spent a lot of money, and I went to a lot of classes, and I met a lot of nice people who were also morbidly obese like me. But I didn't cure myself. I couldn't cure myself. Then a year or two later, I went back, and the day I arrived, I went back and I had met the people that I had met there. I went back and I went back with them. And most of them were already there when I got there. And the night I got there, we went to Krispy Kreme Donuts to eat a bunch of donuts before I started. <laughs> and like, you know, I'm spending, I think I spent $10,000 for two weeks being at Duke Diet and Fitness Center, but I had to have my last fix. Well, yeah, that was, that was dumb. I sabotaged myself, and that's what I did all the time. Um, fast forward to um, oh, when I was down in Duke, when I was down at Duke, I was told that I had I had um, polycystic ovaries, and they did not know whether polycystic ovaries came because I was diagnosed with that when I was 16, and they didn't know whether polycystic ovaries was because I was morbidly obese or whether I didn't handle. 
uh, insulin well, and therefore I got polycystic ovaries, which then caused me to be morbidly obese. Today, I have a better feel for that. I didn't handle insulin at all, and that's what caused my body to react to sugar, and that's, I believe, why I crave it. But um, they told me when I was at Duke that I was going to get diabetes. And if I kept there going that way, I would definitely get diabetes. So I stayed on top of my blood sugar. And when I left there, even though I ate like crazy, I noticed some signs when I was in my mid, mid-40s, mid to late 40s. And I went to a doctor and he said, yes, you've got diabetes. And... Um, I was, at that time, sorry, I, did, I hadn't been diagnosed. You know what, my time element is all screwed up. But um, I came to OA my first time sometime in 2000 because I ran into an old friend of mine who is someone that I went to high school with that I was binge buddies with. And she had, she was, Thin. And I ran into her and she said that she had found her cure in the Overeaters Anonymous rooms. And I said, are you serious? Let me go with you because I could not get there. So I went with her and um, I heard something there in the Overeaters Anonymous rooms that I had never heard before. And I hadn't, it wasn't the, it wasn't the doctor's opinion. I went to meetings that read the OA 12 and 12 and the OA big book, but um, not maybe one or two meetings that read the big book, but I wasn't introduced to the big book at this point. I had been in and out of the OA rooms, but over the years, and I think I had come in once when I was 20 or 22, and I ran out because they said God. And then when I was living in Switzerland, I remember going to an OA room and ran out because they said the word God and you had to believe in God. Well, when my mother was so sick, my family had told me to go to pray to God that my mother would make it through Yom Kippur because she was in the hospital and she was on many drugs and it looked like she was not going to make it. Well, God did not answer my prayers, so I did not think that there was a God out there. And I was mad at God for letting me down. I was, thir- I was 14 years old. What did I know? They told me to, to pray to her pray to this God, and this God was not taking care of me and not able to fix my mother. So how could I believe that there was a God out there? So every time I heard the word God, I ran. Well, for some reason this time, maybe I hadn't gotten to my knees yet, but for some reason when I was going back to the rooms in in my mid-40s, 
40s with my girlfriend. I heard another message, and maybe it was just the message of camaraderie. Maybe it was the message of just being with a group that kind of all looked like me and talked like me and told me they did things with sugar and, and food like I did. That I started going into the, and I started working the, pro, the steps the OA way. I wrote my history with food. I worked with a sponsor. And I lost about 40 pounds. And I went off of what I considered going off of sugar. But I had never, I never heard anything about the allergy of the body at that time. All I heard about was put down the food, keep coming back, work the program, make the phone calls, do the steps the way they're laid out. I worked with a sponsor, and the sponsor had me give her food every day. And um, I, and this, and I then I didn't do. I did a little, little bit of service, but I never made it to step out of step seven. So, although I was in the rooms at that point for three and a half years. I really was not a recovered person. I thought I was at the time. At the time, I thought I was off of sugar. But I was approaching my son's bar mitzvah, and I was getting ready to throw a party, and I did not believe I was going to be able to lose more weight. So I started looking at bariatric surgery. I still didn't have diabetes at this point. Um, so I went for the lap band surgery, and because I thought, well, you know, maybe this will work. If nothing else, I'll lose some weight, and they can take it off, take it out after it's done, because that's what they said they could do. And they said they'd cure me. Well, I had the lap band surgery, and all of a sudden, all the things that I was eating that was healthy wouldn't go down like salads and roughage and um, all I could eat was processed food because processed food would fall apart in my mouth. The rest I would end up throwing up. So my food addiction got even worse. So after about after my son's bar mitzvah and I was gaining my weight back, I went back to the lap band doctor and I said, take all the fluid out of this thing. I'm throwing up all the time. I can't have it in my body. And I proceeded to gain all the weight back plus some. That is the time that during this time I hit my bottom because that is when I was diagnosed with diabetes. I was giving myself Three, four, four shots a day. One of them was insulin. I was on medication. I was still taking sugar. My, I was, I had rosacea on my face because the sugar was hitting my body and it, my body just couldn't deal with all the sugar that I was taking in. And I was killing myself. And I didn't care. 
all my family came to me and said, with frothy emotional appeal, you're going to kill yourself. And I didn't care. I had a son that was now having problems in school, and I thought I had to fix him. I couldn't pay attention to my body. I needed to pay attention to him. I was very selfish, very selfish during this period of time. I stopped skiing. I stopped walking. I stopped exercising. I was giving myself all these shots, and that did not matter. I was in pain all the time. And I started to develop stenosis of the lower spine. And the shooting pains were going down my legs. And I couldn't walk. And I was just 51 to three years old. And I was okay that I was going to die because I didn't care. Meanwhile, I'm still in analysis. Meanwhile, you know, I'm making decent money and my son's kind of fallen apart, but I'm holding it together, or at least think of me I am. In my... my um, My endocrinologist said, you got to cure this diabetes. You're gonna, it's going to kill you. I think you should go for the bariatric, the ruin Y. That will cure the diabetes. So that's what I did. I went into the ruin Y. I was too heavy for the bypass part of it. So they ended up doing the bariatric sleeve. And I was so pissed when I woke up from surgery. I weighed after a week of dieting and before I went in for the bariatric, I weighed 288 pounds, 87 and a half pounds to be accurate. And I was so pissed because I thought this, the cure for, bari- for, for diabetes was doing the bypass part of my intestines. Thank God I was too fat for that. Thank God I am not malnourished today because I, they could not do that. But I was really angry at that stage. This was 2000, this was July 11, 2011. That was the beginning of my coming out of this. The bariatric surgery was just a tool. I lost 80 pounds. I lost 90 pounds. I lost 100 pounds. I started gaining a little bit of it back. 
At the same time, my son, who was now a young adult, was struggling with his own addictions. He had picked up alcohol. And I was sending him off to, um, to a program in New York City, an IOP, and he was getting um, exposed to this big book. And he'd come home and talk about it. And I'd be like, that's not for me. I don't believe in that. I don't have that. Blah, blah, blah. But he was talking. It. He, was, he was seemingly better, much better. And I noticed that I couldn't have I couldn't have one piece of chocolate. And at the time that my son was in the program, he suggested I go to Al-Anon. Two years after, two and a half years after my bariatric surgery, I went to my first Al-Anon meeting. And I got an Al-Anon sponsor. And I hope my Al-Anon sponsor is on this call today because I've told her about it. I don't know if she is. But she said to me about six, maybe five months into working the Al-Anon program that it seemed like I might have a problem with food and maybe I should consider going to the food program. And I said, no, I don't have a problem with food. What do you mean? I just lost 80 pounds, 90 pounds. I'm not gaining it back, blah, blah, blah. Well, a month later, I was able to find in my calendar that I went to my first OA meeting. And this time I went to an OA big, big book, a, a big book meeting, because in my area there is a very good big book meeting at this time, at 8.30 a.m. every Sunday morning, and it's the best big book meeting I've ever been to, shout out to all my peers who might be listening to this call. And that, going to that meeting was the first time I'd ever heard the doctor's opinion read. And one of my fellows in there said to me that I might want to listen to this very newfangled meeting on the phone called Vision for You. Now, I wasn't necessarily hundred percent yet because I was you know I was working with a sponsor but I was still I had made a list of all my allergic foods um, you know the green yellow and red list that we all start or that some of us start out with and I then went to an OA region 6 convention not long after that and I heard about the allergy of the body. I was like, what is this? Yeah, I knew I had a problem with sugar. 
I knew I had a problem with that chocolate stuff. But I was not really sure because it hadn't worked the first time in my head. That was what I told myself. Um, I went to, I guess, when I started hearing the, um, I started hearing a little bit more about the doctor's opinion, and I realized that, you know, everything on my red list was something that I could not reasonably predict how much I would have if I had some of those items. So I took them off my food plan. But things on my food plan on that red list did not include things like ketchup or teriyaki sauce or honey. I thought those were okay just because they had, oh, or even the better one, aspartame or saccharin or any artificial sweeteners. I thought they were fine. So I would walk around with these, with these um, vitamin C cough drops that were sugar-free that I would buy five bags of at a time at um, at CVS, and I would empty them into my pocketbook so that I'd always have them with me, and I'd eat three, four, five of them at a time. I'd go to a meeting, and I'd be sucking on them all the time. Well, I came onto this call regularly every single day in April or June, somewhere in between April and June 2016. And I can tell you that since then, I have not missed more than 10 phone calls or recordings. You guys have been there for me every step of the way. I had my last binge in February of 2016, I had been working the steps with my face-to-face -face sponsor at that time. And I was in a quick step workshop with someone who is very famous in this program. And like every, you know, but also suffers from this disease. And I talked to him after the the last binge, and he said, why don't you do a slip inventory? And gave me the slip inventory, which I love. The slip inventory had me look back at what happened and why I picked up and what was going on in my life at the time. Wow, that taught me something. That taught me what Harlan says all the time. 
I eat essentially because of the buildup of emotion in my life, of everyday emotion. And I had no idea that hand-to-mouth thing that was calling me every day. That hand that was detached from me really wasn't detached from me. I went to an engagement party in August of 16. And at that point, I had considered myself sugar-free, believe it or not. I was not eating any sugar. But I was still having those vitamin C, artificial sweeteners, and I was still eating 12 packs of gum a a week because sugarless gum, but gum. I was still eating ketchup and, and all kinds of other sweetener. But I had heard you guys go through the doctor's opinion, and I thought, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe there's something to this. And at the engagement party, I was struggling to not eat cake. I was taking pictures and eyeing the cake, not the couple. I was craving. I could feel it in my mouth. I could taste the sweetness. And I wanted it. And I wanted that sweetness. So I took a new spot. I took the next morning. The next morning, I started reading every single label. And I realized I needed to give up artificial sweetener and I needed to give up every form of sugar. It took me four days. Four days to get through the withdrawal. And once I was through the withdrawal, I have not had the cravings for sugar again. That was August of 2016. Had someone told me, I probably wouldn't have listened, but had someone told me it would take four days to get off of sugar and you would not care if you had sugar again, I wouldn't have believed them. Now I get it. Four days it took me. On August 26th of 2016, I no longer craved any sugar. It took me a little bit while, a little bit longer to give up all the artificial sweeteners. I did probably by the end of that year or the beginning of the following year. I worked with a new sponsor immediately after that four days was up. I took on a new sponsor from Vision. I was still in my disease, in my head, 
I was not a completely recovered person. But by the end of 2016, I was recovered for one day at a time. I didn't do it perfectly, and still today I don't do it perfectly. But I do it every day. I took my first sponsee. Sorry, in, in, I started working with a lot of newcomers. I made a lot of phone calls. I remember calling one, one new person who said she just could not imagine. And we started talking every day. And she is one of my first recovered sponsees. And I hope she's li listening to this call today. I worked with a bunch of favorite, uh, a bunch of other face-to-face um, -face sponsees, and I worked with a bunch of other, and still do work with a bunch of other people on the call. And I talk to all sponsees, usually Saturday morning, and I'm, I'm on the phone probably for almost two hours, two and a half hours. Now I've started um, I talk to them once a week. We catch up. We give each other support and help each other. And I, since, thank you, Kathy Joe, for the past, I don't know, five months, four months, I've been on the 11th step train, which has changed my program yet again. My food plan has changed. All those items that were on the yellow list, or 99% of those items that were on the yellow list are now on the red list. I basically eat stuff on my green list. And some of those have gone over to my yellow list. But I am happy, joyous, and free every single day. I've lost 130, in between 130 and 135 pounds. I have gone back to skiing, which is a favorite sport of my entire family. I was brought up on skis, and I stopped skiing for 10 years. I live my life today like it is my last day. And thank you, God, I have this program. And I have you all with my gods with skin because you keep it live in my life and you keep it real for me. So that's my story, and I know today that I am trudging the road of happy destiny. Now, I had made so many notes about all the things that really meant so much to me, and I haven't gotten to any of them. 
Let me, and I just noticed I'm almost at an hour. Wow. I didn't think I'd have 10 minutes to talk. So the most important thing that I have ever heard in this program is where we are in this, on this call right now, in the doctor's opinion, on XXVI. We believe, and so is suggested a few years ago, that the action of an alcoholic on these chronic alcoholics is the manifestation of an allergy, that the phenomenon of craving is limited to this class and never occurs in the average tempered drinker. These allergic types can never safely use alcohol in any form at all. And once having formed the habit and found that they cannot break it, once having lost their self-confidence, their reliance upon things human, their problems pile up upon them, becoming astonishingly difficult to solve. Wow, wow, I did not know that was true. And lower on that page, men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. The sensation is so elusive. That's what I mean about the hand-to-mouth stuff that I had no clue. No clue. While they admit it is injurious, I was 287 and a half pounds I was almost, my BMI was 49. I had diabetes. I have neuropathy of the feet because of my diabetes. It was injurious. It didn't matter. I went for that sugar all the time. They cannot, after a time, differentiate the true from the false. To them, their alcoholic life seems the only normal one. They are restless, irritable, and discontent. Oh, boy, am I ever. And that's when I need to do a 10-step. Unless they can, again, experience the sense of ease and comfort, which comes at once by taking a few drinks, drinks which they see others taking with impunity after they have succumbed to the desire again, as so many do, I do not want to be that person ever again. I am trudging this road today, every single minute of the day with you all because I don't know I have another recovery in me. I know I have another relapse. And I don't want to be there. I have the same size clothes in my closet year after year now. I fit into them. I fit into smaller clothes. I got rid of all those 32s, and I'm not going back there. I'm a size 8. Wow! The phenomenon of craving develops. They pass through the well-known stages of a spree 
emerging remorseful every day, every day remorseful with a firm resolution not to drink again. This is repeated over and over again unless this person can experience an entire psychic change. There is very little hope of recovery. I say prayers regularly now. I say prayers regularly now. So I talk to my my people. You are all my people all the time. And when I don't want to, it usually is when I need to pick up even more. I need to pick up the phone, not the food. The phone, not the food. Because you help me get through it. So now my son is almost 400 pounds, does not believe OA will help him. He has my disease. And I have to see that. And I have to live with that. So I'm still in Al-Anon. I'm still in Al-Anon where I can learn today that I can't fix him, that I didn't cause it. You know what? I didn't cause it (laughs) because I had a disease. I can't cure it and I can't change it for him. He needs to want him. And all the emotional, all the frothy emotional appeal I could give to him won't help. But thank you, God. I can live recovered life today and hopefully he'll get there too. I am so proud to be trudging the road of happy destiny with you all. And Leah, with that, I'm going to pass. Thank you so much, Lauren N., for sharing your remarkable story of transformation and offering us this message of hope and possibility. Thank you so very much for your generous spirit today. Share ID for this morning's presentation, 12,440. That's 12440. Lauren N.'s contact information will be offered at the conclusion of this recording, so you'll need to stay tuned for that. We will now transition to a question and answer segment. And you can pose a question by pressing star 1 to unmute. Give us your first name and first letter of your last name as well. Who has a question this morning for Lauren? Cindy D. Cindy D. Christina O. Christina O. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. Melissa C. Melissa. Yes. Oh, sorry. Bless you. Anyone else at this point? All right, let's start with these three. Cindy D., your turn. Go ahead. Thanks, Leah. 
Hi, Lauren. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us. Um, I really got a lot out of it, and I appreciate it. And I, I would like to hear more about the slip inventory and um, how I could get a copy of that. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Cindy. Um, I will gladly share it with you. It was given to me by uh, someone who is very well known in this program, um, and I am glad to pass it on. I've sent it to all of my sponsees when they slip, and it really is a fabulous um, way to look back at what we were feeling when we wanted to pick up. So I will gladly share it to you, um, share it with you. So when you get my contact information, uh, you can either call me or text me, and I'll, I need your email address to send it to you, but I can send it okay. to you. Okay. Okay, thank you thank so you. much, Lauren. Thank you, Cindy. Christina O, please. Hi, Good Lauren. Time. Thank you so much for your, oh, am I, can I be heard? Yes, you can. Uh, hi, Lauren. Thank you so much for your share. I'm just coming back for, from a slip, and um, I, uh, I've been abstinent, um, compliant, but not surrendered for about four days now, and I'm, I'm really white-knuckling it, and I'm wondering, um, I also would like, I also will send you my email uh, address to get the slip inventory. Um, but I was wondering if you have any uh, words of wisdom um, when you're white-knuckling um, abstinence because you're not surrendered yet. Um, yes. Um, when I was in that six-month period of um, that I consider myself the beginning of my journey on this program, um, I listened to, or actually when I was on, when, I get, when it gets hard for me anytime, I download a podcast and I listen to it. I listen to, there are so many good podcasts on this, on the vision call that I listen to all the time, that I've heard many times, that I, um, any one of the doctor's opinion um, abstinent uh, um, podcasts, um, the what is meant by entire abstinence um, podcast is fabulous. Um, I, I like the double whammy that um, I've heard several times. I have those on my phone and when I um, When I have when I have a hard time, I listen to a podcast, and that, and I pick up the phone, and you know because we all live it, we all live it, and there are always times when we struggle, and if you talk to a God with skin, you get to hear yourself. I get, you guys tell my story. And it's only because of that that I know this works. So that's what I'd say. 
Thank you. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Thanks, Christina. Oh, Melissa C., your turn. Hi. Good morning. Thank thank you, Leah, for your service. And thank, oh, thank you so much, Laura. And I'm really happy to hear you this morning. Um, I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about, I know you talked about the loss of your mom and um, and how um, you struggled to have an understanding of God or, or an interest even in God and how, um, what that process has looked like, because I, I seem to speak to a lot of people who've suffered losses and, and they struggle with the God concept. So I was hoping you could kind of illuminate us with that. Thanks. Thank you, Melissa. Thank you for that question. I still struggle with God. I still struggle with God. And I have, when I was 14, the God that I believed in was this God that had a big white beard and lived in the sky and looked down and passed judgment on people. Well, my God today is very different from that. My God lives on in, in, in nature today. My God lives in people around me, in the message I hear from others. My God talks to me in a way that is kind and loving. It's not judgmental and angry. It's loving and caring. My God tells me that I'm good, I'm good enough, that no matter what, I can do this. I'm standing in a living room in the middle of Telluride, Colorado, looking at a beautiful mountain range. If that's not God today, going to go skiing with my brother and his wife on a gorgeous mountain, privileged to live life today as a recovered woman. I have a God in my life today because I hear it shared. I hear it in all different ways. I hear it from you, Melissa C., when you talk on the line. I hear it from Harlan G and I hear it from Katie G and I hear it from Leah and I hear it from Melanie and I hear it from everybody that does service and I hear it from the people that I talk to on my on my 11 step train and I hear it from Barbara and I hear it from everybody out there and all together you make my me you make my god And I can hear the message of hope from you because you lived this life with me. 
I want this life for my loved ones. The woman that came back, that brought me to OA the first time, is no longer in OA. And she won't come back, and she's in the food, and I am so wanted for her. But she's not ready. And when she's ready, she'll get there, and hopefully she'll get there before it gets too bad. But thank you, God. I found this, and I'm not with her anymore in that, in that pain of the food. And I can say thank you, God, today and not feel ashamed that I believe in a God. Because there was a time that I felt, and I still have a problem with people who are not in program saying, God help me. But I say it to myself, or I say it to my fellows, and thank you all for listening and for being there. Okay, Leah. Thanks, Melissa C., for the question. Who else has a question this morning? You can press star one to unmute. Naomi B. Hey, Naomi. Kathy B. Kathy. Linda G. Repeat that, Yolanda A. Oh, Linda G. Thank you. Yolanda A. Yes, Yolanda, thanks. Carol G. Carol G. Okay, that's a good group. Let's start off with Naomi B. Everybody else mute, please. Thank you. Thank you, Leah. Thank you for your service, Lauren. Wonderful. I was so touched by your sharing. It was beautiful. But I've got a question. Was there any kind of reconciliation with your dad? Did anything like that happen? And I'll mute myself. And thank you again. Thank you, Naomi. Um, I... I love my dad. <laughs> um, my dad is still alive. He is 90 years old. Um, I've still, I've spent many years trying to make him happy. Um, but when I worked my ninth step, I did take responsibility for my part in our our bad relationship. I am not, I realize my, I say the, the, um, the sick man's prayer a lot about my father. Um, I say the sick man's prayer about a lot because he is a sick man. He is, um, besides for physically sick, he has Parkinson's disease and is not in a good way in his physical body. He has never emoted and he has never had an emotion. Um, so I'm able to take what I like from him and leave the rest. And 
I realized today that he was just a very sick man and did not know how to cure me. He did the best he could. It wasn't good enough, but he did the best he could, and I love him for it. So, yes, there was a reconciliation. I no longer go to him, though, for to feel whole, and that's the best part of it. Thank you, Naomi B., for the question. Cassie B., your turn. Hi, I'm Kathy B. from uh, Westchester, New York. Hi, Lauren. It was so wonderful to hear you. And so I zeroed in. I know that you and I have talked about this before. Like, I have never actually been free, like you talked about, and it was very, you know, it always is very, um, you know, inspiring to hear that you could be really free from the cravings. And so... Like, I've been off sugar, you know, often, often in my life, and I am right now, but, you know, I have been so reluctant to give up the sweetener, and I always say to myself, oh, you know, like, I'm not like an abusive person with the sweetener, and so I always give my, but you know what, I have to now really say that I never get rid of the craving, so I'm interested in that four-day process that you went through, and, like, could you tell me about, like, did you, like, stay home? Did you have to stay in bed? Did you continue working, you know, and functioning while you were going through the cravings? Or how did that, you know, four days work in your life? Thanks. Thank you, Kathy B. Um, I am so grateful to say that I was able to work through it, but I was a bitch on wheels. And thank God um, my civilians around me didn't take it personally, Um, but it was hell. It was hell. And all I can do is, all I say is I talk to a lot of people and listen to a lot of calls, and I white-knuckled it. You know how when you, you give up, you give up the goodies when you're on a diet, and that's what I did. I was on a diet, and I was on a diet for four days. And on the fourth day, I was so clear, and it was the relief was so incredible that I could walk past a, you know, chocolate cake that I knew in the past would call me, and not give a crap. I could smell it and not care. That's, I can't describe that feeling enough. Mm. And I want it for you, Kathy B. I want it for you. Mm-hmm. Thanks. Thank you, Kathy B. Linda B., your turn. Star one to unmute. Um, Good morning. This is um, Linda G. from Massachusetts. Um, Thank you, Leah, for your service. And um, thank you, Lauren. Um, You were really, really inspired me this morning. My question is, um, you talked about 
um, being on an 11th step train now that you are recovered. And um, can you talk about what that is? Um, I've never heard of that. Um, Thank you. Um, it's a, it's a group of people that, um, change up who we're working with, um, every two weeks, we get a new person and we find a mutually, uh, beneficial time and we go through the 11th step and it takes about 10 or 15 minutes every day and we talk and get to know one another basically and um, um, I can give you the contact information for the woman that organizes it and um, you can reach out to her directly if you would like to get on that train. Um, It's done through an app um, but I'm sure there are other kinds that go around. Um, I don't know who, I don't know I'm sure there are other ones out there, but it's a group of recovered people that get together and switch up who they're working with every two weeks, and we get a new person. And so that's why it's called a train. Um, and and we give our 11th step away every night or every morning. We Some of us do it in the morning, some of us at night. So... Thanks for the question, Linda G. And Yolanda A., your turn now for a question. Hi. Thank you, Leah. Yes, Mm -hmm. I'm here. I'm sorry. Thank you. I just had to unmute. Um, Thank you so much for your service, Leah, and thank you, um, Lauren, for your share. My question to you is, after you fully recovered in OA and started to um, engage with people outside of the program who didn't know anything about the program, how did you manage people who wondered, why aren't you eating this? Why aren't you eating that? Can't you just have a little? You're not eating like you used to, or I miss my eating friend. Can you tell us how you navigated those situations? Thank you. Thank you, Yolanda, um, for the question. I, what a good question. Um, my life has changed so much since then, um, but I still have friends that I used to eat with that um, comment on it. I now, I go everywhere, but I bring food with me. So, for example, I got to tell you right yesterday, in my suitcase was uh, bags of salad, Oatmeal made the way I have it, Um, blueberries. Um, I arrived at my brother's house with enough food to get through the week if I choose to. Now, we will probably go food shopping and buy additional things, and I'll go out to eat. I don't eat every meal at home, Um, but I'm very... um, Uh, And that's the way I show up at everything. I bring my food with me. Um, My sister said to, I went away with my sister and brother-in-law last weekend to Boston to a 90th birthday party. 
and we stayed at my aunt's house. And my aunt asked my sister what I eat. And my sister said to my aunt, don't worry. Knowing Lauren, she'll show up with what she needs. And that's exactly what I do. I show up with a bag of food and I have what I need. I don't, I very rarely leave things to chance. If I know I'm going out to dinner, I pick a restaurant where I know I can eat things. I know what I'm going to order before I go. Um, I also, you know, talk to the waiters and waitresses and, and pull them aside if I have to and ask them to ask, a, ask the waiter a question, ask the, the cook a question. I know if it's a, if it's a um, top high-priced restaurant, chances are very likely they tell me the ingredients. If it's a low-priced restaurant, <laughs> I'm not going to get anything there that doesn't have sugar in it. So I have to be very careful about what I order. So, um, you know, I'm not perfect. There are times that I have things that could have sugar in them that I can tell because the next day is a little hard. So I'm extra careful the following day. Um, That's all I can say. I also, my friends don't ask me to eat. Like, we used to go to a fondue place that had chocolate fondue as dessert. I'm like, I don't go there anymore. And they know it. They know it. I just don't. I won't go there. And in the beginning, I told them I couldn't go there because it was too hard for me to be there. And they got it. I said, I'm on a diet in the beginning. Now it's not a diet. It's a way of life. It takes me, it takes me two, sorry, it takes me two hours to get ready on Sunday for the week. I make my salads. I make my snacks. I have my oatmeal. I have everything that I'm going to eat for the week already because I don't want to do it in the morning. I do it in the night on Sunday. So. Thank you. Thanks, Yolanda. Carol G., your turn for a question, please. Yes, hi, Leah. Thank you for your service. And hi, Lauren. Thanks so much for your very beautiful talk today. I wanted to ask you if you ever spoke with your bariatric surgeon or surgery staff about OA. Um, Were they receptive? Or if not, do you think they would be receptive? Um, Thank you, Carol G. That's a great question. Um, The first bariatric staff I used, I did. Um, and no, they were not. They are, bariatric surgery is a money-making operation. They don't do it for recovery. They do it because they can make money off of it. And I know that. And it does serve a purpose. 
I'm um, what I'm I'm eight years out. It's 2019. I'm nine years out, eight years out from the bariatric sleeve, and it is a tool I still use. I get full very easily. I can bypass it. Don't get me wrong. I can eat the food that doesn't fill me, that doesn't fill me up. I know what food that is, so I know it's a tool. It's not a cure. But um, the staff, they, the staff at the hospitals. The second surgery I went to was New York Presbyterian in New York City. They are a factory. They do not do this for recovery. They do this for money. And it served the purpose for me, and thank God they weren't able to do the Roux-en-Y. They only did the sleeve. Thank God for that. But it's still a tool that I use. I'm not suggesting people have the surgery. I'm just saying... It's a tool. And with that, I'll pass. Thanks, Lauren. Thank you, Carol G. We can take a couple more questions before wrapping up this morning. Anyone else have a question on their minds? Carrie K. Carrie K. Christina L. Christina Mary R. And Eugene Organ. And Mary Lee. Okay. Let's do those three. Carrie Kay, go ahead with your question, please. Did you call Terry Kay? Yes, Terry, go ahead, please. Okay, I was unmuting, sorry. Mm-hmm. Um, I hear a lot about slipping versus relapse, and I don't really understand the distinction. Can you address that, please? Carrie, thank you very much for your question. Um, There really is no, there is no slip. It's a relapse. I guess if you make it short, it becomes a slip. If you're able to get right back on and be, and be able to be absent and be, and and not pick up the next day and and not beat yourself up and not go back into that hell hole of of self hatred that comes with this illness, then it becomes a slip. But they are synonymous in my head. Um and it's a way that we can lie to ourselves that we're not that bad. I get that sometimes I make choices that are things that are on my yellow list that should not really still be on my yellow list. But I can pre- know, I know today that it's not it's not sugar because sugar is on my red list and stays on that red list every minute of every day what sits on those that 
list is things like salty items. Now, sometimes I have problems with salty items and sometimes I don't. I can eat salty items if they come in small packages and are pre-weighed and measured. I cannot reasonably know how much I will have if I add a big bag of something. I can't have it because I will eat the whole bag. But if I'm able to have a bag of pre-measured cashew nuts that have salt on them and they're pre-measured, I can have one bag and not crave anything else. Would it be better if I didn't have them at all? I'm in the process now of thinking about giving them up. I've given up other bag items because usually when it's in the bag, it's not good for me. It's stuff that's in, it's anything that, that when you read the ingredients has got two ingredients in it, vegetables, that kind of stuff. I can do, but that's my feeling on a slip versus a relapse. Thanks, Terry Kay, for the for the question this morning. Christina L, your turn. Good morning. This is Christina L, recovering compulsive overeater. Thank you so much for your service. I got a lot out of what you had to share, Lauren, and um, I was just wondering if you've had to put um, fruits and vegetables on your red food list, and um, did you realize them all at once, or were they gradual, and how did you handle them? How did you handle eliminating them? Like if you did them all at once, or if you eliminated them gradually, if you even had to. Um, thank God, not yet. <laughs> This program is one of, you know, it's, it, it does change. It changes every, every day. And as other people mentioned, you know, on the line, the um, food plan is not an abstinence plan. Um, my food plan changes. And more stuff has gone on my food, what I don't eat list then started on that list. Um, I will say right now I can eat all fruits. Vegetables I have no problems with. I don't have any problems with any vegetables. All fruit I can eat. Um, I haven't had, you know, any, thank God, I haven't had any of the sugar dealing with um, with any fruit, so I'm going to say that I hope I won't ever, but I'm told that it happens, and it might. So I'll get there when I get there. Thank God I don't have to worry about that today. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you, Christina L. All right, our final question for this morning comes from Mary Lee R. Good morning, Leah. Good morning. Um, thank you so much for being of service. 
Um, two questions. When you're sponsoring someone, um, do you do you have requirements for them? And if you have time, can you give like a little brief outline of what your um, your your day looks like in recovery? The first mm-hmm. question is more important to me, though. Okay. Um, well, thank you, Mary Lee. Great question. Um, my uh, when I sponsor someone, I talk to them every day. I usually talk to them first thing in the morning, um, depending upon, um, you know, obviously sometimes when I'm on vacation, like this week, it's going to be a little bit harder. But um, I usually am on the phone with my sponsees. Um, usually have a six thirty, a six o'clock call, and a six thirty call. Um, I give them a half hour um, on Monday through Friday. And then from 7 to 9, I'm on the vision call every day, Monday through Friday. Um, on the weekends, I don't do it as early, but I do talk to them. The, right now, I'm not working with someone from the 6 o'clock hour. I'm just doing the 6.30 hour. And then someone in the later morning at like 9, 9.30. Um, and we read through, in the beginning, we read through the doctor's opinion. We read through the big book. And we read up until um, the How It Works chapter, and then we go straight in and we talk about it. We read a sentence. We read a paragraph. We kind of do what we do on the, on the vision call. And... Um, we touch base and we talk about how it feels and all the all the stuff that's going on and whatever comes up in what the big book talks about. And then we go straight into step four. And step four for me is about learning about how I chose to be a victim all my life. And step, I do one um, I do it the way it was done with me. I do one um, resentment at a time and give it away. One resentment, give it away. One resentment, give it away. And then we go into um, uh, into you know fear and we go into sex and then we go straight. You know, so we've done that and then we go into six, seven, eight and we go straight into nine. It's done in three months or less. Um, that's the way it was done for me, and that's the way it worked for me. I don't have the wherewithal to go through, a, you know, a year of, you know, pondering my navel because I needed to get to life, and um, I need my sponsees to get to life too. Um, but it's also required that they start working with someone else when they're already in step nine because that's when you get the most recovered. In my book, my book, in, until you're giving it away, you're not learning it. So um, I kind of answered both of your questions at once. Um, I, talk to, I talk, try and talk to newcomers. My sponsor had me call two people by two o'clock 
two by two is what she used to say. Um, I don't always get to two by two, but I try and get um, newcomers, um, you know, in the afternoon sometimes, in the evening sometimes, when I'm driving home from work. Often when I'm driving, um, I pick up the phone and then I, you know, that's, that's, and then I work my 11th step with, and if I need to during the day, I'll work a 10th step. That's how my day goes. And I pray a lot. And that's, thank you, Mary Liar, and that's a great place to end. Thank you so much, Lauren N., for sharing your journey of transformation with all of us and sharing about entire absence and the urgency for the steps. Thank you very much. And we'll close from page 164 in a chapter entitled A Vision for You. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.